monkeypox, should we be scared? COVID-19, early treatment, ivermectin, all of these different things that you're not supposed to talk about. We'll be saying those silent things out loud on today's podcast was we have Dr. Jordan Vaughn, the co-founder of Concerned Doctors, uh, and also the CEO of MedHelp. So he'll be joining us to tell us uh, everything we need to know about the subject. You'll want to stay tuned. You're being lied to more than any generation in the history of the world. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. We want to have good journalism that lasts Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. We've got a stellar episode for you today. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of the podcast, joined by the editor-in-chief, <laughs> Ray Mellick, uh, and co-host of the podcast. Ray, how you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm as pretentious as the uh, title of this podcast That's can right. be. That's yeah. right. The, the, the. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, as you guys can see, if you're watching and probably can't hear if you're listening, Dr. Jordan Vaughn is in uh, the studio with us. Uh, Jordan is the CEO of MedHelp and also the co-founder of Concerned Doctors. He is a really um, courageous guy who I've admired for uh, at least a year and a half now, maybe coming on two years of the work that he's done, uh, both at MedHelp, but also Concerned Doctors and really um, pioneering the the way of pushing back against some of the bureaucratic um, treatments of, of COVID and um, just the work that he's all around done and, and early treatment and all these other things. And so um, having him on, we're going to be talking about COVID. We're going to be talking about early treatment. We'll probably even start talking about monkeypox and, and why the COVID stuff still matters. Um, Jordan, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Brian. Awesome. So, um, before we jump in, you guys know I got to tell you where you can find the podcast, uh, Apple Podcast, um, YouTube, and Spotify. Go there or anywhere else that you get your podcast. Sign up. Click the bell. That way you're getting notifications when we publish new podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Tell everyone there how much you love the podcast because we know you do. Um, and the biggest thing we're always asked, what can we do to support 1819 News? We love the work that you're doing. The biggest thing you can go, do is go to 1819news.com. At the top, there's a red button that says subscribe. Go there, click that button, put in your email address. We're not going to sell your information. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, and what you'll get every single morning at 745 in the morning is the 1819 News Morning Edition, essentially, where we're bringing you all the news of the day that matters to Alabama, all the opinion pieces talking about issues that matter to Alabama, and then all of the podcasts that we publish coming directly to your inbox. You don't have to do anything but uh, wake up, grab a cup of coffee, and turn on your computer or your handheld device and get everything you need. So, um enough of that. Let's get down. Let's get down to business. So, um, Jordan, I think, um, a good place to start. Um, I kind of teed up a little bit about who you are and what you've been doing, but, um, we've known each other for a while now and really I've been watching you, um, risk in a sense, almost life and limb, uh, metaphorically, but realistically, um, your medical license and all these other things, because you were one of the first people in the state of Alabama pushing back uh, against a lot of the, not just the mandates, but just the way things were being treated and the way, you know, basically the narrative, um, you pushed back when it wasn't popular. You gained a lot of notoriety. I think you spoke at Briarwood and there was some news channels there. And, uh, interestingly enough, it actually was good for your business, which I I think is, is awesome. Um, but, um, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, um, when, when you kind of realized there was a problem or even go back to, okay, so, Um, I'm just a doctor, you know, maybe it's March, 2020. I don't remember exactly what the dates were stuff starts happening. Um, and when you kind of realize that there was a problem kind of like, so, I mean, 
the initial thing is the fact that I uh, am more than just a physician. And I think, uh, you know, as my dad would say, I'm uh, other than him, I'm a probably pretty good physician. He's better, but, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I have a practice that, um, you know, we basically see about 170, 180,000 patients a year. So when a lot of the stuff was coming down the pipeline, first of all, I mean, I have to think about not only the patients that I take care of in the chronic disease setting and how to continue to do that, but also uh, my employees and exactly how to take care of them and make sure they're taken care of. Again, I have about 200 families that depend on a paycheck um, from my company. So in that case, I had to look at it from uh, kind of multiple dimensions and uh, really understand that a lot of what I was going to do was not only going to impact my patients, myself, but also the families that are employed by my business. So um, I had to take a look at it. Obviously, I'm unique in the fact that I own my own buildings, I own my own practice, I own my own pharmacies, I own my own um, labs. Uh, so therefore, I had to dig deep and find out what was the best way to utilize the knowledge that was given and was out there, not necessarily what was spit off by the uh, ADPH or CDC, but instead at the actual core PubMed level. Because again, yeah. the world is producing data, and a lot of the data was coming from where where the world was being impacted, whether it was Italy, China, those yeah. kind of places. There was a lot of data coming from those places, a lot of papers, a lot of um, basically case reports, and that was out there for us to kind of dig our you know dig our hands in and go, all right, well, what is this going to be? Yeah. And it was interesting to see that a lot of that um, really influenced. Uh, the way that I was going to look at the disease in terms of treating it. And then there was a disconnect between what looked like early, you know, early treatment or any type of treatment that you had a disease that treating it earlier always seemed to actually have better outcomes was kind of the direct opposite from the purported narrative that everyone in the U S should follow, which was, all right, this is the disease, isolate yourself um, and basically wait until you can't breathe. And I've never told a patient, wait until you can't breathe. I mean, that's, to me, just, it's crazy. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I, I, I want to lay a little bit of pre-work because we get a lot from the CDC. You know, probably most of us never thought about the CDC or even the state health director or the NIH before this happened. I'm curious as a doctor with a, with a practice, how many directives, how much did you really hear from and how to handle your patients from government agencies prior to this? Very rarely. I mean, you know, the Alabama Department of Health might send out something when there's a, um, you know, a new flu strand and that they might want to collect samples or something like that at the lab there in Montgomery. And so they're, they're you know, seeking that out. Uh, the CDC, in a sense, might give uh, guidelines uh, for, you know, really kind of esoteric diseases. I mean, actually, probably the only time I actually went to the CDC website prior to this was when somebody like Brian was like, I'm going to go to Ecuador and what do I need to go to there? Yeah. And so you yeah. go look at the CDC for international travel, all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, they just collected data and um, and would disseminate that data and basically kind of give physicians information on trends that were developing. We never really sought them out for, oh, well, this is what we need to do for this patient in my exam room because the CDC said so. Interesting that those kind of guidelines and that the, the, we've had medical professions become almost rock stars through this thing. And, and it's not what we've and I know we're going to get into this, but typically I go to my doctor because he knows me and I want to talk with him about what he thinks is best, knowing my health background. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to me, I always tell people that, you know, the reality, and this is, you know, Obamacare basically got rid of the independent physician who wasn't 
have what you know there wasn't the middle manager or academic system or multi-billion dollar conglomerate between them and their patient you know as much as obama says you if you like your doctor you can keep him yeah if you like your doctor you can keep him he's just not your doctor anymore yeah. so yeah he, you like he, the new one you're gonna yeah, get yeah. yeah well not only that he's he may be the same face and name but the person that pulls the strings is different yeah yeah, yeah. wow and i think it's it's kind of like the um adage of it doesn't matter until it matters. And so a lot of the existing infrastructure we had and the way things have trended and we didn't really know how bad we were positioned until the storm came. So it's like, you know, you have a house and it looks like it was built. Well, the wind comes and knocks it down. And I think, you know, COVID, um, you know, while, I mean, it was obviously certainly bad. It wasn't the Spanish flu, but I think it was enough of a, a situation to come in and, and show us how poorly, not even prepared, but just the, the system and the setup was. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, protocols, guidelines, all those kind of things that are put out by societies are, are useful. And I think also they are usually pertain to things we know about. Okay, yeah. It's never something that suddenly pops on the scene. And we know that in, as you know, 1819 News probably is a free market enterprise kind of thing. I mean, price discovery, price theory, the ability, what we call distributive knowledge, all those things are super important when there's a brand new problem on the scene. And the yeah. last thing you want is some old, you know, what I would call commissar Soviet structure dictating what to do from the, you know, Ivory White Towers. And that's what happened. Yeah. Rather than essentially collecting data from people who are boots on the ground that's actually doing this, actually treating it. And again, it's the whole reason you guys go to school for like two decades, it seems like, is in order to be able to treat patients, to know and to understand. And, and in order to be a doctor, right, you're considered the brightest, you know, and best minds in a society go on to be doctors. And so, you know, you want to trust these people to be able to identify what's going on, use the knowledge that they've been giving and the experiment, the the experience from years of treating patients um, to go in and, and say, you know, this is what I'm seeing and this is what's worked, which is essentially kind of how concerned doctors came to be. It seems. Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, just kind of fast forwarding in the story was I really um, even concerned doctors. The interesting thing about the state of Alabama is we do have, as much as we have a fragmented medical community because of kind of the history of hospitals, and we could get into that in, in general later, but um, the, you know, there is still, most of them are my father's age, but yeah. there are still a good bit of local independent physicians that have their own shingle, you know, hung up and are there to see patients and take care of them. Yeah. As much as the government, as much as the uh, healthcare industry, as much as the insurance industry has tried to, you know, demolish these guys, they're still standing. And that means they're pretty smart, pretty good critical thinkers and pretty resilient yeah. at being able to solve problems. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think, want to make sure we squeeze everything in uh, and hit all the high points and, and drill down deep where we need to. So you obviously saw that um, wait until you can't breathe and then we'll intubate you wasn't the way to go. Um, when did you begin to, you know, discover that there was early treatment? What were some of those early treatments? And then, you know, I guess when you look at it, you know, putting all your chips into that early treatment thing, why did you do that? Well, the first thing is, is at the time, uh, other than tell somebody to do nothing, um, yeah. uh, the preventive principle would say, um, let's try something that we know is safe, that the worst thing it can do is n not help. Yeah. And so in, in that case, it, it, I mean, it makes sense that we would have all these, I mean, medicine is, is, is evolved and developed all kinds of therapeutics. Now yeah. I, I always tell people all the time that a medicine is, you know, just because it said you, we use it as an antibiotic medicines are molecules that act on mammalian cells. Okay. And so basically 
Just because it has bactericidal properties or antibiotic properties doesn't mean it doesn't have anti-inflammatory properties, antiviral properties, anti-cancer properties. And so uh, it was funny to me that so many doctors also fell into that hole and were like, oh, well, that's only used for this. And I was like, well, that's kind of, you know, misunderstanding of pharmacology, but I'm not going to knock them for that. But, um, you know, how many things do we use every day that were discovered for one thing that are now used for another? It's kind of how it happens. And guess what? mammals are mammals. So we do most of the testing on mammals. And so um, that might mean that your cat's medicine, the name on the bottle might be something you've taken before. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not that unusual. So to, to say, well, that's a dog medicine or that's a, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a misapplication of basic understanding of pharmacology, molecules, mammal cells, all the stuff that you should have learned in med school. Yeah. And you own a pharmacy, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So just giving his qualifications, <laughs> going to med school is enough, but I, I think that is actually helpful. Um, so some of the early treatments that obviously be- began to be, you know, pushed back against by the ivory tower, you know, bureaucratic NIH, WHO, CDC. Um, but the, I think you saw extreme effectiveness is, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, the first thing you do is obviously if, if anybody's ever COVID-19 is SARS-CoV, what's the number? 2092. Okay, so what does that usually mean there is? There is a one. Okay, so if there was a one, as you know, basic critical thinker, wouldn't you go back and say, I wonder what worked with one? What would you? Two, three, four. Okay, five. yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, you would you would probably sit there and go, oh, SARS CoV 1, 20, you know, 2003. Oh, wow, there's lots of papers that show that there's some interesting antivirals. One of them ha- happened to be hydroxychloroquine, which is actually changes the pH of endosomes and, de- you know, decreases entry, but has a lot of other pluripotent properties. Um, and I mean, to me, that would be a pretty easy understanding. The other thing that people started throwing at uh, the virus was uh, medicines that we knew over the counter, not over the counter, but anyway, medicines that we knew that were FDA approved safe uh, that had antiviral properties. They may not be antiviral properties that Pfizer got a patent for, but they were find out they were found out after they yeah. were brought on the market. So again, once a pharmaceutical comes to the market and is proven to be safe, the next thing a lot of people do is say, "What what else does it do? We can, you know, yeah. we know it's safe now. Let's try it on other stuff." Yeah. So, and I assume is ivermectin one of those drugs? That- Absolutely. I mean, yeah. uh, ivermectin is one of these medicines that uh, I mean, again, it comes from nature. Um, it is uh, found in a basically a fungus or a basic, you know, it was found in some weird guys on an Island. This guy was just like going out and finding different weird fungus and basically cultured this and found that it had, uh, anti-parasitic properties, which was great, um, for the third world. But Merck at the time who was uh, in charge of patenting it said, you know what, there's none of these countries that need this medicine, um, are going to have any money. Yeah. To, to buy it. So we might as well license it to the WHO for free. And therein lies their problem. Cause the second they did that and additional discoveries were made about its antiviral properties. It actually has even anti-oncological or anti-cancer properties that are showing up. Um, all of a sudden Merck's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't know about that, but we, yeah. we would have patented it. We wouldn't have given it to the WHO. And in fact, Merck is currently trying to patent long acting ivermectin uh, at the Very Guys Institute that was responsible for the meta-analysis, Andrew Hill uh, Institute for uh, Repurposed Medicines in England. So, again, on the horizon, there will be a pill 
that is ivermectin, I think, that uh, is long-acting. Of course, because it's long-acting, they'll be able to patent it. Um, but again, does it surprise you that that's the case? No, I rem- and I remember kind of discovering this stuff, and you know, I'm watching Merck just trash ivermectin. I'm like, this is your guys' drug, and they're just like, this is such garbage. But by the way, we have this new stuff coming out that's basically ivermectin, and it's a little bit rebranded and slightly different, and we have a patent on it, and yeah. this will save your life, right? And it's like, well, that's weird. <laughs> exactly. So um, it does get crazy, and I'm going to say something that's, a, a well, at some point, that's probably a bit hyperbolic, and, and Ray will bring me back down to earth because um, that is the mm-hmm. nature of our relationship. But going into effectiveness, um, and I guess just go ahead and, and, and feel free to just, like, you're, you're in a comfortable zone. Like, I, I mean, you know me. Feel free to say whatever, you know, whatever comes to mind on this stuff. Don't hold back. Um, so we see that ivermectin's working, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, Trump used uh, hydroxychlor. What, what was it? Yeah, so Iver- I, I, ivermectin wasn't really seen until probably the summer of 2020. <clears throat> Initially, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. which was not a crazy thing because actually a, a journal called Virology that Fauci actually was an author on uh, was talking about how SARS-CoV-1 could be inhibited and prolaxed uh, with the use of what hydroxy- is prolaxed for our meaning listeners? preventing it from spreading. Okay, and preventing it from people from getting it. So it's a preventative rather yeah. than just a now. Treatment. Again, it was enough for the government to stockpile this medicine back in the early 2000s. Um, So it must have been pretty good evidence, but God forbid that we have a politician mention that. And uh, then, again, that's where you started to see that there was a disconnect between what science was, okay? Yeah. Um, And what, you know, basically what they forgot to include the first word, which is political science. And one one (laughs) of the things I've come to realize recently is when people say follow the science, okay, it, it doesn't kind of rings hollow. And the reason is, is because science really doesn't lead anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Science is an evaluator. It's a data producer. It gives you the ability to weigh pros and cons, but it doesn't tell you what choice to make. Okay? Yeah. That requires individuals. And guess what? If you say in the name of science, guess what you are getting rid of your responsibility. Yeah. Okay. So science is used to abdicate responsibility that should be taken by these people that made this decision. Mm. And science takes time. I think that's one thing that we lost as as I've dealt with researchers in in, uh, other fields, but they'll say it's four or five years, sometimes more, to decide what science really is in any given situation. Exactly. And then the other thing is, is what science says at that point is all of a sudden a political thing. And, And then it's basically also captured by whoever funds that political movement, <laughs> which is pharma. Well, and go ahead, well I was going to say, it's almost funny because I'll go back to this. My doctor, in the beginning, we were talking. It was almost like I felt like I was dealing with a, a back alley drug dealer. He said, look, Ray, I really have used hydrochloroquine successfully. I don't tell people, but if you, know, if you feel like we get it, this is what we're doing. But it's just that he was put in a position to have to go, Hey, I'm going to use this thing. Just don't tell anybody. Is is yeah. terrible. I mean, that's why I go to him. Is because I, yeah. I I believe he knows me best and knows yeah. what works. On well, me. even then, I mean, you know, most of the time, in in honesty, when it's off label or something like that, first of all, I tell all my patients, this is why we're using this medicine. Okay. Yeah. Um. And you know, I want them to agree to use it, or they cannot use yeah. it. By yeah. the way. Okay. So I'm pretty sure all of the, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, all those discussions. I, I never heard anybody forcing or mandating anybody takes it. Yeah. Uh, we heard of that about another product, mm-hmm. but in this one, it was a uh, informed consent discussion between a physician 
and his patient, which, by the way, is the foundation of medicine. Amen. I love it. That's it. And so I think, and again, um, how far to take this, but so I became infuriated when I began to study ivermectin. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I didn't visit the Holiday Inn Express. Didn't stay at one of those either. Right. So, um, however, you know, looking at data and researching and trying to find opposing data and really what I found, all the data seemed to support the effectiveness of ivermectin, the safety of ivermectin and the cost effectiveness of ivermectin. And the only pushback was, it doesn't work. We're scientists. We have white coats on it's it. For it horses. doesn't work. It's for horses. Yeah. And they yeah. even went there. And so <clears throat> what, what really uh, stirred an emotional uh, spot inside of me that would, that I would identify as rage um, was that our government is taking something that so many doctors, so many medical professionals, so many tests, so much data is showing that the effectiveness of this, um, and the safety of this and how cheap this stuff is that we, meanwhile, this virus is surging and people are dying and people are dying in droves and they're dying painful deaths away from their family members because of all the policies and everything else. People are basically intubated and left in a room to die by themselves while their family sits, you know, wondering what's going on. This is all happening, and the government is pushing back against this early treatment that even even if it wasn't that effective, but it was safe, it's like, well, why not let them try it? But we have shown you know, that it is effective, and they're being told no. And so to a certain degree, and, and, and again, it's like when you when you listen to Robert Malone, you listen to um, Pierre Corey and uh, McCullough and all of these guys who, <clears throat> again, you're, you know all these guys, they finally get down to it. And everyone's because of lawyers is really like, well, I don't know if I would go that far, but you, it's like, there's that dot, like, okay, the only thing that makes sense here is that there's a financial thing here. This is a really an unpatented, cheap, like $3 a treatment drug that's wiping out this virus. And these pharmaceutical companies over here, like, that's not good for us. And so now all these people are dying and so it almost looks like, and again, the hyperbolic word, and again, I'm not saying it is, but it's the only thing, it's almost like a form of genocide where it's like you're letting these people die and you're not giving them something that can save them. And then when someone like you goes and then treats those people, then all of a sudden your medical license is threatened, right? Because you're actually treating them with what you know works. Yeah. You know, the, I, it's at that, at that point, I, you know, I think that I would call it a, a Hobbesian choice, but it was... I think because of the mechanisms, and this is actually, this surprised me actually when the uh, vaccine that they have got FDA approved, because I thought the second that that happened, um, that all of a sudden all this, you know, pushback against uh, repurposed medicines would, you know, go away. Because again, the EUA, the the law the government wrote, which again is, again, usually the central problem of poor medical care is the government dictating it. But the EUA required no um, effective medical treatment is available. Okay. And so that was their purpose likely is that they saw that the only solution was a vaccine, a vaccine, by the way, that they developed a technology called the spikes stabilization technology that we just licensed two weeks ago to the rest of the world that Ralph Barrett actually at the vaccine research center produced in 2016. Funny that 2016, I'm pretty sure that's before we knew about COVID, but yeah, could have, could have, you know, yeah. well, we repurposed, uh, by, by the way, did we repurpose the technology for the vaccine? I think so. Oh, I think we did. Yeah. So it's okay to repurpose then. Yeah. They still had the patent on it. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to the fact that that, that Hobbesian choice of, okay, uh, we, we, we have this vaccine that we have to, that we believe in, believe in, believe in. And again, that's stipulate that they, they believe that this yeah. would be the panacea and we have this thing that might compromise it. Yeah. And they said, I think, you know, 
well, we can't compromise the panacea. Yeah. And um, my personal opinion is they shouldn't be able to make that choice. Yeah. Again, what should matter would be let the vaccine go on and develop. I mean, heck, if I was president or Fauci at the time, I would say this law is dumb. It's designed for cancer therapies and things that we know about. It is not designed for pandemics. Throw this EUA out. Try everything. And yeah. I'll keep up with the data. Yeah. Does that make sense? And again, in, in a in a crisis situation, you don't sit on the battlefield and say, well, the general hadn't called yet. I mean, these guys are shooting us. Well, the general hadn't called yet. Don't fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it, you go to battle. I yeah. mean, that's that's the reality. What, uh, and I'm not as familiar as Brian is, so, so help us understand a little bit of the pushback you got. As you started to say, hey, this is the way I think it ought to be done, what what happened to you or to your other doctors? So so first of all, you know, in my world again, because you know, you know, my practice, I was just doing what I thought was right based on the literature that was available throughout the world, and the world was doing cool things from Italy to India to Brazil. And you started to say, well, heck, that medicine's safe. Let's try it here, and it worked. Um, so to me, it was like that 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 was my solution, which was like read what everybody else is doing, learn from my own experience, and do the best for what I think my patients can you know, receive that's safe. It wasn't until that I kind of interfaced with the vaccine mandates with a lot of other physicians that were being dictated to, um, that I started to go, what, y'all aren't even allowed to do this. Yeah. And, uh, and once your profile raises, because at that time, uh, you know, a lot of these doctors said, well, you know, well, we can't, you know, we've got a family to feed and, you know, yeah. um, and I said, well, I pay my own paycheck. So again, bring it. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll take the first arrow. I'll take many arrows, but because um, I thought it was right, but I also was doing it for them. And that's when I, I discovered all these other doctors like Dr. Tankersley or Dr. Calderwood that were also doing this throughout the state. So again, it's a local solution by smart men that are critical thinkers for their communities. That's, Dealing I mean, with what that, they're that, putting what, their that, hands on. Yeah, that's what, that's what America's about. It's not waiting for the commissar at the, you know, the— yeah the uh, you know central committee to tell us what medicine I'm allowed to give Brian. Yeah. So talk about And his- so that what I'm the pushback that I got was eventually I you know my kids starting kindergarten and um at the time they didn't have a mask but then then the uh, delta started back up and you know I was like I'm going to go tell the board of education of Mountain Brook that this is crazy. Yeah. Um way to put my, it nicely. Yeah. I saw you going for another word there. This is yeah. Crazy. And so, and what, what I got up there and did was I, I, I didn't necessarily say that masks don't work. I said, you keep your stipulation. Let's say they do work. Okay. My question was, what's the consequence? Okay. Because every intervention has a benefit, but has a risk in a medical intervention from a mask to wash. You know, there are things, everything has a, has risk and no one's studied the risk might've been okay to do it for two weeks because there might not be any long-term risk, but it's been 18 months and yeah. y'all are still <laughs> recommending this and no one's done one bit of darn data on what's the consequence to people that are four, five. I mean, give me a break. And, and here's the funny, funny thing. And I won't mention his name, but the, there was a UAB professor that was brought to counter my argument. And they also switched the order of public comments. So he would go last, which I thought was kind of funny because everybody in the room was like, Oh, we've never done that in history. I was like, what are we like in eighth grade here? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, um, but I asked him that question and he said, Jordan, I'm not, I mean, he's my professor. I respect him. And we, we have a good relationship. And I think he was sent because 
for the most part, I'm, I, I try to argue things at what really matters, not argue emotionally in the yeah. sense, but say, look, w- what are the consequences? Um, he goes, Jordan, that's not my, I, I'm just here to say they might work or that at his way, they'd yeah. say they work with his observational data. I don't know the concept. I, I can't imagine it's good. Yeah. At least he was honest. Okay. Um, but it did, just seem, didn't seem to matter that it might be negative for our kids because I guess maybe our, I mean, again, it's, it was, it was just such a, so at that point, then somebody wrote a letter to the board of medicine and I get investigated, which for, again, speaking at a board of education meeting for a school that my kid goes to. Yeah. So how, how great, I mean, I'm sure that's, that's actually why the board of medical examiners and the Alabama medical commission was founded to investigate people that speak at their kids' educational meetings on recommendations for their child's purview of education. Yeah. As a doctor. By the way, it it wasn't, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So, but either way, I mean, take again, I'm not a, not a poor man. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had the ability as well as I pay my own paycheck to fight it. And they again realized, Hey, Jordan didn't give up his free speech um, rights when he became a physician. Yeah. I guess they wanted me to, but they, he did. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that it, this has required people to stand. And and that's what I admire most about you is the fact that you stood. God has put you in a position to where um, you weren't at quite, I mean, you still stood to financially lose huge, but we're in a position where, where you could do that and do that for your employees and do that for, I mean, um, and you stood. And so I'm super grateful for that. Um, you know, I tell people, and I know you're probably going to blush, but I, I tell people that you're a hero because of what you've done. Yeah. To me, I mean, again, you go back to these organizations and uh, I, I would say the business, you know, business council of Alabama is a good example and how they yeah, uh, went and said, Oh, it's okay to close businesses down. I was like, if there's one job, the business council of Alabama has, <laughs> it's to keep businesses open. Yeah. Now the Mer- uh, the board of medical examiners, the Alabama board of medical examiners, or MASA, or Medical Association of the State of Alabama, if there's one job they have, it's to make sure doctors can take care of their patients. Yeah. And they fight against it. It's, it's, it, it literally, it, you know, when, when your foundational charter you're going against, you probably need to reexamine what you're doing. Yeah. It's crazy. I want to jump ahead. I know we have a little bit of time. But the vaccine. Uh, because even now we're seeing companies or agencies, whatever, that are still required, even though we're sort of coming out of this thing now, or we're getting a strain that's less uh, severe, dangerous. less severely. Yeah. yeah. But yet we're still seeing requirements, even travel. you got a proof of vaccination. Yeah. I mean, just a good example to just show you how crazy things are right now. The uh, booster for the five to 11 year olds was approved last Monday. Okay. But the CDC ACIP, which is the investigative body. Okay or the independent body to evaluate the data for recommendation didn't meet till Thursday. Okay. So again, I would ask you if you were voting on a board and it's already been decided. Yeah. Would you ever go against that? Or I would remind you the first time that they had the booster uh, argument in September of 2021, they didn't roll out the approval before the meeting. They had the meeting before the approval, which by the way, is the way you should have it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, They voted it down. Yeah. So the Biden administration learned their lesson, approve it before the meeting and then everybody votes for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that data looks at it and five to 11 year olds have the highest seropositivity rate, meaning they've all had COVID. It's almost 80%. And this is from their own slide deck. Okay. Yeah. Yet then they go on to say the boosters work, but guess where, the, guess who the boosters were tested at? 
Mm. People who had never had COVID, five to 11 year olds that never had COVID. And I'm just sitting there going, how can those two data sets even be, yeah. you know, merged, you know, and just, you know, reconciled. And it was, well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's already been approved. You know, I mean, it, 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 that's a problem. Regulatory crapture is, but that that's the problem with a lot of this is we've picked one solution and that solution, as much as there was hope in that solution and there was a lot of research in that solution. Um, and even in January of 2021, I would have said, well, I think this is a reasonable solution for people who haven't had COVID. That was the first kind of, oh, this vaccine thing's a little different because at the time I was like, well, I know all these people, I'm testing their antibodies and know their antibody quantitatively uh, levels after they've had COVID. They're definitely not getting the vaccine because I know based on the data that no one that had had COVID was included in the trial. So I don't know that the safety data is, pertains to them, right? Yeah. Um, but then when I talked to my colleagues that were at places that have better rapport than I do, yeah. they were like, no, we're giving it to everybody. I was like, how does it, like, you know, yeah. guys, come on. Oh, well, we're just, they couldn't rationalize why they're doing it. They're just saying they're doing it. Um, and so then that was that disconnect. But then, you know, February, March comes along. I get my first patient that, you know, has an elevated D-dimer, has shortness of breath, has clots. Yeah. Doesn't have COVID. Just recently got his vaccine. I was just starting to go, okay, ding, 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 ding. I need to look into this a little bit better. And then from there, you start to go, wow, this thing, spike protein's thrombogenic. We, we don't know much about how it affects people when we tell the body, basically give the body the instructions to produce it for an unknown amount of time and an unknown quantity. I mean, everybody's different. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, I was like, we need to be a little bit more um, vigilant in who we're recommending this for. And then, but at the same time, you started to see, oh, not only are we going to give it to everybody. I was like, no way they'll touch kids. Like, mm -hmm. no way, no way. I mean, it makes sense for 75-year-olds because, again, if there's, you know, consequences 10 yeah. years down the road. Probably not going to be here, right? right? Comorbidities, okay. uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Older comorbidities, but, yeah. But but for children or for even really anyone under, under 50 without a compelling reason, I was just like, we're really going to go there? Like, And I was expecting that it wouldn't just be one solution. I mean, I was expecting that there's going to be pharmaceutical solutions, more, more monoclonal antibodies, more antivirals, stuff like that. But no money was spent in that area. And I was just like... I'm not really sure why that happened. And even in uh, April of 2021, actually the vaccine proponents thought it was over. Yeah. Okay. They, they were, they canceled the monoclonal antibody. Why there was a shortage of monoclonal antibodies in the fall was because the Biden administration canceled the contracts because in April and May of 2021, they were patting themselves on the back. It's over. Yeah. Again, pick one horse, make sure you got the right horse. Yeah. And, Again, that's the other thing is I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust the government to pick your horse. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt about that. So um, statistics, you talk about data and things that you're tracking. I've been on some of your guys' calls, um, the concerned doctor's calls early on. Um, what are the statistics of people who fall into you got to them early, early treatment, um, how many hospitalizations, death, you know, all like, how many did you treat? How many were hospitalized? How many died? Yeah. I mean, you're talking, uh, there's different components of that. Obviously our therapy, the <clears throat> other thing I want people to understand is that our therapies for treatment have evolved and meaning yeah. that, um, a, a viral illness is 
uh, goes through phases, meaning viral proliferation where it's replicating to your immune system over responding to how your immune system over responding affects your end organ system. So it's kind of this three phase thing. And so along the way it was, okay, we know this is going to happen day 20. So why don't we implement this thing day five? And so it became what we call, and Dr. McCullough actually was the first person to put out this um, treatment regimen. It was a multi-drug therapy, meaning, so it was not one drug. So again, a lot of people say, well, that one drug doesn't work. I agree. I, I didn't say, you know, that, and by the way, we know one vaccine doesn't work. Yeah, it's you need more. Um, yeah, it, but in in this case, it was multi drug therapy. It was hitting the virus and the virus's uh, you know concomitant uh, destruction to the body uh, at every point that it does that. And so that by by the summer of you know twenty twenty, um, and then especially after the you know, that bad twenty twenty winter when the vaccine was coming out. Uh, that's when we had like, oh my gosh, we even know anticoagulants are important. We and so by then it's like this kind of you know six to fifteen medication regimen that works. Um, and so by then, when when we implement that therapy, especially early, um, I mean you're talking even at my clinics probably fifteen thousand people um, that we have done some variation of it too. Yeah. Um, and you know we're talking maybe in the teens on hospitalizations and, you know, on the fingers amount of deaths. So yeah. it's, it's 15,000 treated under 20 hospitalized, less than five deaths. And it depends on if you count the people I take out of the hospital because yeah. they're being treated. And talk about <laughs> that too. We, and, and the reason I feel comfortable talking about it, uh, and, and I won't use their names, but we, we did the article on the family. Um, and that's something else. I mean, uh, the pressure, of, uh, you know, the hospitals to, to, you know, not only is the vaccine their choice, but also the intubation and, you know, um, that whole thing. So we all know, uh, or at least I know you and I do, and I know Ray's familiar with the story, but essentially a family where, um, guy came down with COVID, he was uh, very, very sick. They had a trusted doctor friend, the trusted doctor friend said, Hey, put him in the hospital. That's where he needs to be. He goes into the hospital. He's basically at death's doorstep. Um, and you know, the wife was essentially, you know, it's almost like a Sophie's choice situation, you know, for a, for a wife to be in and like, you know, she's hearing from you, you need to get him out of there. She's hearing from this other doctor friend. No, he needs to be in there. That's the best place for him. And she just goes home and prays like, God, what do I do? And just really felt led to take him out of there, takes him out of there, takes him to you. You were able to get your hands on him. And within a week or two, he was back up on his feet going like it had never happened. Yeah. And you know, one of the, this goes back to one of the other problems I think about the response when we talk about, um, you know, stay at home uh, until you can't breathe. But then yeah. when you can't breathe, we're going to isolate you and uh, keep everybody that cares about you away. Okay. Yeah. So I would ask the NIH or even the Alabama Department of Health, um, what's one of the biggest determining factors in health outcomes? And that's, they would use the fancy word or politically correct word, social structure. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a good way of saying, you have hope and you have people that care about you. Yeah. Okay. So in what ways was our response to basically take away the most important thing in recovering from disease and say, you know what, we'll pull the clergy away from you. We'll pull your family away from you and we'll put you in a room and make you feel like you're a prisoner. Yeah. I mean, just think of the morbidity and mortality that could have been prevented just from that, just alone. from that. Cause again, I can tell you in my, in my years as a physician, if somebody doesn't have hope, 
it doesn't matter what the disease is. It doesn't matter who your doctor is. Yeah. Your outcomes are going to be poor. Yeah. It's a weird non-tangible that's hard to, you know, quantitatively measure, but you know, as a physician who's sitting there looking at people and knowing their backstory, there's a thing, um, and, 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 um, you know, I'm going all my background on it, but, um, a, a story I was in a, you know, kind of a detrimental situation in my past that really required hope to get through. We'll, we'll just say that. And, uh, it was, uh, I read this study about rats that they placed in Mason jars that were, you know, one the Mason jar was painted completely black. It was like no light could get into it. And they shut the rat into this Mason jar where there was no light. And the, the rat gave up, you know, paddling kind of dog paddling to keep his head above water in like, I don't know, less than five minutes. Um, they poked a hole in the Mason jar so that light could get in it. And the, the thing, you know, for like two weeks sat there paddling and then finally couldn't paddle anymore and died. And so just that, that giving that rat hope that, Oh wow, there is something here. They ends up going for two weeks. And I think that there is something built inside of us that, um, if there's something to live for that we're, you know, subconsciously our body fights. Yeah. For I mean, we know that, I mean, why do, the reason we have to do trials with against placebos because placebo is pretty dang effective. If you yeah. think yeah. you're actually getting yeah, um, something studies. that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in that, you know, it, it's a, it's a classic example of we're going to squelch, um, hope and, and not only that drive fear into you. And I will tell, you know, as a Christian, that's the exact opposite of anything that is productive. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't matter medically. It doesn't matter what it's, if you literally take somebody that's already not doing well and not only squelch their hope, but you yeah. isolate them. I mean, you ought to be, I mean, that's called malpractice, but for yeah, whatever right. you're doing, but you know, I'll, I'll, my own medical experience is more, uh, orthopedic neurological, but what we have found also is if a doctor can't give you something that's working, go find a different doctor. There are doctors all over the country doing studies on even this, that if not, not that your doctor is, is evil, he just doesn't know all the time what's out there to be done. And I'm a huge believer in get another opinion, talk to somebody else that may have come across a study like you're saying that says, well, I saw a study over here that this might work. Do you want to try it? Yeah. And in the way the actual medical community is set up now, um, you know, as much as dysfunctional at the United States level and a lot of the, you know, the media censorship, the reality is our access to what other people are doing all over the world is instantaneous now from PubMed to preprint servers. And so it's, you know, it hasn't been Zuckerberg yet, you know, but, um, it, it gives you the ability to look in a lot of different places as doctors. And so, um, but I will say the amount of information, the amount even that I look up every morning when I get up and kind of look up at you know, the preprint servers on what's coming through for COVID. I mean, it, if I read every paper that came out that morning, I, I would be up till midnight. Now, I kind of pick through the ones that I think are useful to me in my daily um, interface with patients that are sick. Um, but it's... It, 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 there's probably another smart person reading about your issue in a different way than y- right. your doctor is. And I'm not saying that your doctor is not, not a good doctor. I'm saying he might just not, that just might not be his wheelhouse. Yeah. And so. And we've, uh, we got about four minutes till we got to jump. Um, there's so much I want to get in. We'll, we'll just have to have you come back on. Um, Cause it really, I'm wanting to kind of do a kind of 30,000 foot view of the whole scenario. And we can really maybe come back and have follow up podcast where we drill down on each issue um, talk about, um, we talked about the recent study from Oxford before we started recording, uh, talk about that a little bit. 
So it's on the preprint server uh, this week, and it just it shows you, and it actually is a pretty honest per, uh, overview of uh, the Omicron uh, variant and how effective the vaccine was at uh, decreasing morbidity and mortality. And what it basically said was it did seem to work prior to Omicron, as in the Delta, it probably uh, you know decreased mortality by a you know in terms of overall a percent. But when they looked at the data during Omicron, um, as it failed in terms of uh, its affection, most of the morbidity and mortality benefit was just because of the decreased virulence of the Omicron. It had nothing to do with who was vaccinated or not, which is, we've been seeing that anyway. Yeah. Um, that, it, you know, the vaccine, and well, I mean, you could also say that the vaccine might have worn off. Of course, who who, who thought that would happen initially? Yeah. Oh, I did, but you know, yeah. you just have well, to. You not just, as advertised. Yeah. You, you just have to look back at when you know mRNA technology was being utilized in the past. I mean, it's nothing new. It's 2004 when we started to use it in different therapies and in vaccines. Uh, you know, after two years on your typical vaccine study, you know, usually at the end of it, the placebo group. Uh, first of all, there was two things. One, it didn't last long enough, so that was not surprising. Even though yeah. Walensky asked, like, she actually she was sitting there at uh, some interview saying we didn't even know what waning was. I was like. How did you not know what waning was? It was in the literature about this technology in, for the last 10 years. Um, the second thing uh, was, you know, it, the virus or whatever you were trying to keep it at bay really escaped it fairly quickly because it was very narrow. And yeah. then the third was at the end of the two years, the people in the placebo group were better off than the people that got vaccinated. Yeah. So, again, I'm not saying that that's – but, again, the, the, the study that we use for this worldwide vaccination program was two months. Yeah. Two months. Uh, on a two-year study, no one had ever had one of these approved. Just to let you know. Wow. It's crazy. And it's one of those, you know, some of it is hindsight 2020, and you want to have a certain amount of, you know, grace. And, you know, everybody had to deal with this in real time, and it was all these other things. However, I do think that there is a certain amount of accountability where, you know, smart people who have common sense could have been like, well, there's probably a better way to, we could have well, handled this. I think, you know, again, I don't know if I've, I've may have said this earlier, but following the science, yeah. um, that term is just a way to abdicate responsibility Yeah, because science isn't a leader. It doesn't make choices. Yeah, The people that look at the data and look at what they're doing, they make choices and they should be held accountable. Yes. And so that, that actually uh, makes me, um, yeah, is it standard of care? I think that's the right terminology for it. That's basically like, this is how we are going to treat this. And if you treat so this is how we're going to treat this virus. If you treat the virus this way and people die, you're not held accountable. Yeah. And so we've got your back. That's classic technocratic progressivism. Yeah. Which is, hey, look, the, we think this is the science. It's this nameless, you know, I mean, go find who wrote that protocol. He, yeah. he doesn't exist. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you, it's not a person. You, you can't, you can't, you can't call him before a grand jury. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's designed to be nebulous. Yeah. And instead, what we need to do is get back to not science is important, but the science itself doesn't make the decision. The science informs. Yeah. And the, the doctor or the human make the decision. And you'd rather much rather see a failure in a lab than a failure in, oh, yeah. a, in a real group. You yeah. know, that's the scary part. Um, and in thinking about it, and again, everybody likes to just think that everyone's always going to do the right thing, but there's always determining factors. There's always influences. There's always incentive, you know, incentives. And so when you look at the standard of care and you have these major hospitals and everything else saying, hey, if you treat this disease this way and they die... We have your back legally and you're not liable. If you treat it this way, which is the way that you've been treating it, and they die, you're on the And hook. we already know those incentives anyway, yeah. because we, there's plenty of studies that show that, you know, significant amount of laboratory studies that physicians do are what we call CYA, 
Okay. Yeah. They have no benefit (laughs) to the patient. They're only to protect the doctor. Um, and, you know, again, trying to figure out that, but th- there's always competing incentives yeah. uh, and disincentives and it, it's the world we live in. Yep. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, tests that your doctor might do to just make sure that you don't, you know, hmm. come back and sue them one day. And yeah. that's, again, and that's, the, that's the world we live it's in. The climate we've but created. But you have to understand that always. when you also set up a structure that says, if you follow this therapy, you're off the hook. What are you going to do? Yeah. Follow that therapy, yeah. even and, if they die. And, and there's a there's a reason Pfizer wanted, yeah. you know, there's a reason Pfizer currently is not approved to be used in India. Yeah. Okay, because India asked them to do local trials before they would approve it. Again, Pfizer as a shareholder, you would say and say, well, there's a 1.2 billion people over here. What are you talking about? Why are we walking away from India? But yeah. they said, no, we're not going to do trials here because that might reveal something we don't want to find out, and it's not worth you know compromising the rest. But in America. Our government said, Pfizer, you're immune. Yeah. You can, I mean, and, and they they said, and I don't blame them, said, well, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> All right, um, we're two minutes over, but hit us monkeypox. Should we be scared? So, no, um, <laughs> not particularly. Um, it, it happens to uh, trace back to people with sig- significant different lifestyles than I think all three of us have. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, as much as it's, you know, an interesting thing to cause what I would call fear promulgation. And, you know, we've all been through, it's almost like yeah. PTSD, yeah, um, puppy. but it, it took about two weeks for the CDC to come out yesterday and say, Oh, by the way, it's mainly homosexual men and bisexual men at uh, raves and uh, that are having hookups indiscriminately on dating apps, which is a, is a pretty specific thing for the CDC to say, by the way, yeah. but uh, I didn't know why it took two weeks for them to find that out. Uh, and then at the same time, Yale, at the, one of their epidemiologists came back and said, we can't actually ask them to stop. Um, so uh, we're going to have to just deal with this. Yeah. So I guess I guess that's good for the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Um, so for us, <laughs> uh, we're going to need you to shut your business down. Uh, we're going to need to force put, the put vaccines. A mask on your we're going to put a mask on your kids. Uh, basically, life as you know it is over, but we can't ask the gay people to stop going to raves and hooking up. Yep. Crazy. That, it, and so that... I think that and that that's kind of the 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 in a nutshell of the whole thing that we're dealing with is is you know they say follow the science we're not dealing with science we're dealing with narratives we're dealing with you know perverse incentives we're dealing with broken structures and institutions that's I mean a, I mean heck we're we're dealing with the Hobbesian Leviathan that needs an emergency all the time for the state yeah, to solve yeah you know I mean it's you know we're we're, we're there yeah you know we need Lockean principles back. I want to go into Lockean principles now, but I know I'm, I'm I've got a lunch I got to get to so. Um, Sorry, I mean, no, that, that's no, my medical opinion. Good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, we'll definitely have you back on. We'll make you a regular. Um, Jordan, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, I enjoyed it, man. Awesome. All right, guys. You, you, well, by the way, you always get more than you bargain for when I. That's when right. Bargain, so. Every time. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us again. 1819news.com. Subscribe for the newsletter, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Sign up for the podcast so that you get notifications. Uh, and until next time, put your trust in God. Keep your powder dry.